Chapter Three of Initials Only. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Initials Only by Anna Catherine Green. Book One, as seen by two strangers. Chapter Three, The Man. You know the man. I do, or rather, I know a man who answers to this description. He comes here once in a while. I do not know whether or not he was in the building tonight, but Clawson can tell you. No one escapes Clawson's eye. His name? Brotherson. A very uncommon person in many respects, quite capable of such eccentricity, but incapable, I should say, of crime. He's a gifted talker and so well read that he can hold one's attention for hours. Of his tastes I can only say that they appear to be mainly scientific. But he is not averse to society, and he is always very well dressed. A taste for science and for fine clothing do not often go together. This man is an exception to all rules, the one I am speaking of, I mean. I don't say that he is the fellow seen pottering in the snow. Call up Clausen. The manager stepped to the telephone. Meanwhile, George had advanced to speak to a man who had beckoned him from the other side of the room, and with whom in another moment I saw him step out. Thus deserted, I sank into a chair near one of the windows. Never had I felt more uncomfortable. To attribute guilt to a totally unknown person, a person who is little more to you than a shadowy silhouette against the background of snow, is easy enough, and not very disturbing to the conscience. But to hear that person named, given positive attributes, lifted from the indefinite into a living, breathing actuality, for the man's hopes, purposes and responsibilities, is an entirely different proposition. This Brotherson might be the most innocent person alive, and if so, what had we done? Nothing to congratulate herself upon, certainly. And George was not present to comfort and encourage me. He was... Where was he? The man who had carried him off was the youngest in the group. What had he wanted of George? Those who remained showed no interest in the matter. They had enough to say amongst themselves. But I was interested, naturally so, and, in my uneasiness, glanced restlessly from the window, the shade of which was up. The outlook was a very peaceful one. The room faced the side street, and as my eyes fell upon the whitened pavements, I received an answer to one, and that the most anxious of my queries. This was the street into which we had turned in the wake of the handsome stranger they were trying at this very moment to identify with Brotherson. George had evidently been asked to point out the exact spot where the man had stopped, for I could see from my vantage point two figures bending near the curb, and even pawing at the snow which lay there. He gave me a slight turn when one of them, I do not think it was George, began to rub his hands together in much the same way the unknown gentleman had done, and in my excitement I probably uttered some sort of an ejaculation, for I was suddenly conscious of a silence in the room and when I turned saw all the men about me looking my way. I attempted to smile, but instead shuddered painfully as I raised my hand and pointed down the street. They are imitating the man, I cried, my husband, and the person he went out with. It looks dreadful to me, that is all. One of the gentlemen immediately said some kind words to me, and another smiled in a very encouraging way. But their attention was soon diverted, and so was mine, by the entrance of a man in semi-uniform, who was immediately addressed as Clausen. 
I knew his face. He was one of the doorkeepers, the oldest employee about the hotel, and the one best liked. I had often exchanged words with him myself. Mr. Slater at once put his question. "'Has Mr. Brotherson passed your door at any time to-night?' "'Mr. Brotherson? I don't remember. Really, I don't.' was the unexpected reply. It's not often I forget, but so many people came rushing in during those few minutes, and all so excited. Before the excitement, Carson, a little while before, possibly just before. Oh, now I recall him. Yes, Mr. Brotherson went out of my door not many minutes before the cry upstairs. I forgot because I had stepped back from the door to hand the lady the muff she had dropped, and it was at that moment he went out. I just got a glimpse of his back as he passed into the street. "'But are you sure of that back?' "'I don't know another like it, when he wears that big coat of his. "'But Jim can tell you, sir. He was in the cafe up to that minute, "'and that's where Mr. Brotherson usually goes first. "'Very well. Send up Jim. Tell him I have some orders to give him.' "'The old man bowed and went out. "'Meanwhile, Mr. Slater had exchanged some words with the two officials, "'and now approached me with an expression of extreme consideration.' They were about to excuse me from further participation in this informal inquiry. This I saw before he spoke. Of course they were right, but I should greatly have preferred to stay where I was till George came back. However, I met him for an instant in the hall before I took the elevator, and later I heard in a roundabout way what Jim and some of the others about the house had to say of Mr. Brotherson. He was an habitué of the hotel, to the extent of dining once or twice a week in the café, and smoking afterward in the public lobby. When he was in the mood for talk, he would draw an ever-enlarging group about him, but at other times he would be seen sitting quite alone and morosely indifferent to all who approached him. There was no mystery about his business. He was an inventor, with one or two valuable patents already on the market. But this was not his only interest. He was an all-round sort of man, moody but brilliant in many ways, a character which at once attracted and repelled, Odd that he seemed to set little store by his good looks, yet was most careful to dress himself in a way to show them off to advantage. If he had means beyond the ordinary, no one knew it, nor could any man say he had not. Of all personal matters he was very close-mouthed, though he would talk about other men's riches in a way to show he cherished some very extreme views. This was all that could be learned about him, off-hand and at so late an hour. I was greatly interested, of course, and had plenty to think of, till I saw George again and learnt the result of the latest investigations. Miss Challoner had been shot, not stabbed. No other deduction was possible from such facts as were now known, though the physicians had not yet handed in their report, or even intimated what that report would be. No assailant could have approached or left her without attracting the notice of someone, if not all, of the persons seated at the table in the same room she could only have been reached by a bullet sent from a point near the head of a small winding staircase, connecting the mezzanine floor with a coat-room adjacent to the front door. This had already been insisted on, as you will remember, and if you will glance at the diagram which George hastily scrawled for me, you will see why. A, B, as well as C, D, are half-circular openings into the office lobby. E and F are windows giving upon Broadway, and G, the party wall, necessarily unbroken by a window, door, or any other openings. It follows, then, that the only possible means of approach to this room lies through the archway H, or from the elevator door. 
but the elevator made no stop at the mezzanine on or near the time of the attack upon Miss Challoner, nor did anyone leave the table or pass by it in either direction till after the alarm given by her fall. But a bullet calls for no approach. A man at X might raise and fire his pistol without attracting any attention to himself. The music, which all acknowledged was at its full climax at this moment, would drown the noise of the explosion and the staircase, out of view of all but the victim, afford the same means of immediate escape which it must have given of secret and unseen approach. The coat-room into which it descended communicated with a lobby very near the main entrance, and if Mr. Brotherson were the man, his sudden appearance there would thus be accounted for. To be sure, this gentleman had not been noticed in the coat-room by the man then in charge. But if the latter had been engaged at that instant, as he often was, in hanging up or taking down a coat from the rack, a person might easily pass by him and disappear into the lobby without attracting his attention. So many people passed that way from the dining-room beyond, and so many of these were tall, fine-looking, and well-dressed. It began to look bad for this man, if indeed he were the one we had seen under the street-lamp and as George and I reviewed the situation, we felt our situation to be serious enough for us severally to set down our impressions of this man before we lost our first vivid idea. I do not know what George wrote, for he sealed his words up as soon as he had finished writing, but this is what I put on paper while my memory was still fresh and my excitement unabated. He had the look of a man of powerful intellect and determined will, who shudders while he triumphs, who outwardly washes his hands of a deed over which he inwardly gloats. This was when he first rose from the snow. Afterwards he had a moment of fear, plain human everyday fear. But this was evanescent. Before he had turned to go, he showed the self-possession of one who feels himself so secure, or is so well satisfied with himself, that he is no longer conscious of other emotions. "'Poor fellow,' I commented aloud, as he folded up these words. "'He reckoned without you, George. "'By to-morrow he will be in the hands of the police.' "'Poor fellow,' he repeated. "'Better say poor Miss Challoner. "'They tell me she was one of these perfect women "'who reconcile even the pessimists to humanity in the age we live in. "'Why any one should want to kill her is a mystery. "'But why this man should, there, no one professes to explain him. "'They simply go by the facts.' "'Tomorrow surely must bring strange revelations.' "'And with this sentence ringing in my mind, "'I laid down and endeavoured to sleep. "'But it was not till very late that rest came. "'The noise of passing feet, though muffled beyond their want, "'roused me in spite of myself. "'These footsteps might be those of some late arrival, "'or they might be those of some weary detective "'intent on business far removed from the usual routine of life "'in this grand hotel.' I recalled the glimpse I had had of the writing-room in the early evening, and imagined it as it was with Miss Challoner's body removed, and the incongruous flitting of strange and busy figures across its fatal floors, measuring distances and peering into corners, while hundreds slept above and about them in undisturbed repose. Then I thought of him, the suspected and possibly guilty one, in visions over which I had little of any control, I saw him in all the restlessness of a slowly dying down excitement, the surroundings strange and unknown to me, the figure not. Seeking for quiet, facing the past, facing the future, knowing perhaps for the first time in his life what it was for crime and remorse to murder sleep. I could not think of him as lying still, slumbering like the rest of mankind, 
in the hope and expectation of a busy to-morrow. Crime perpetrated looms so large in the soul, and this man had a soul as big as his body. Of that I was assured. That its instincts were cruel and inherently evil did not lessen its capacity for suffering. And he was suffering now, I could not doubt it, remembering the lovely face and fragment memory of the noble woman he had, under some unknown impulse, sent to an unmerited doom. At last I slept, but was only to rouse again with the same quick realisation of my surroundings which I had experienced on my recovery from my fainting fit of hours before. Someone had stopped at our door, before hurrying by down the hall. Who was that someone? I rose on my elbow and endeavoured to peer through the dark. Of course I could see nothing, but when I woke the second time, there was enough light in the room, early as it undoubtedly was, for me to detect the letter lying on the carpet just inside the door. Instantly I was on my feet. Catching the letter up, I carried it to the window. Our two names were on it, Mr. and Mrs. George Anderson, the writing Mr. Slater's. I glanced over at George. He was sleeping peacefully. It was too early to wake him. But I could not lay that letter down unread. Was not my name on it? Tearing it open, I devoured its contents. The exclamation I made on reading waking George. The writing was in Mr. Slater's hand, and the words were, I must request that the instance of Coroner Heath and such of the police as listened to your adventure, that you make no further mention of what you saw in the street under our windows last night. The doctors find no bullet in the wound. This clears Mr. Brotherson. End of chapter 3